Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Beautiful. Are you guys New Spring? Anyone else? Beautiful. I've got a... Um, going to continue just in our series of just really going through our purpose statement and kind of reminding us of who we are again as a church. The title of today's message is called Shared Lives. I was just thinking, um, I was out this morning and um, I was just really thinking about this year, 2022. And um, um, this is, like personally, this has kind of been a um, difficult year for myself. And it's been difficult for um, reasons that people probably wouldn't appreciate. Something happened this year, um, which was very different to the last, I don't know, know, 20, 23 years or so. Um, Every every kind of like, the last 20 years or so of my life, I've kind of gone to God and said, God, what do you want me to do? And he kind of speaks and I just do it. And that's quite like, and he knows, like, you you tell me to go, I'll go. Um, In fact, um, coming to lead this church is not what I wanted to do, might surprise you. Um, I remember very clearly um, we came here and um, it was Kelmscott Church of Christ and um, I'd already written out my resignation letter um, for the previous church and um, what I thought, so, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll just come and, um, to Kelmscott Church of Christ and we brought some friends and um, we were sitting, we were actually just sitting at the back over there and um, um, people know by now, I've been senior pastor for 10 years so I can tell some stories now. There is only one service I've ever walked out of in my life, and that was this church's service. And what happened is that there was um, just some people up here, and um, obviously stuff was going down. But there was this blame that was kind of put upon the congregation. And I actually heard the words come out of someone's mouth, the Holy Spirit has left. And I thought, gee, you're kidding me. I just spoke to the Holy Spirit five minutes ago. And um, it was just like it was just like this real thing where I just got like I just got frustrated. It's like don't treat people that way, man. And um, we had our friends, so I said, "Oh, let's just go." Sorry, like I felt really, really bad. And um, like in, in in my mind, my mind was kind of set. Like that's it, Lord. <laughs> oh, this is a sign. <laughs> I can stay over there. I walked out. And um, I was a little bit like hot under the car, under the collar because I don't. Don't, didn't really appreciate the way that um, the, the people were being treated. And I was in the alcove and I said under my breath, I said, I'm not coming here. And the Holy Spirit spoke so firm, he said, you will be here. <laughs> it was firm, he said, you will be here. And I knew from that point, it's like, okay, game over, like, whatever. And, and, and it took a long time before they even went through the interview process. But I knew that the next day I needed to hand in my resignation. God had spoken and that's it. And um, that's kind of been the deal. Like, like God, wherever you want us to be, we're going to go. And um, this year, kind of coming into um, this year and knowing that God's wanting to take this church into a new season and all that, and um, kind of go to God and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And um, this is the, like, the real, real first time where God's actually spoken back to me in this way. And he says, like, son, you've served for 10 years. What do you want to do? That's the hardest thing, isn't it? That was, that's been so, so difficult for me this year to actually really consider what do I actually want to do. You can ask Andrea. It's difficult finding me like a gift or something, like Christmas presents, birthday presents. Invariably, we just get stuff and I buy stuff for the church. Like, it's just always, but what do you want to do? It's been a really, really um, hard question for me. I think other people would find it really easy if God says, what do you want to do? Yeah. But for me, it's kind of been this life where, God, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. You send me somewhere and we'll go. So this has been a real um, interesting year for me. And, um, and, and not to say there's been opportunities to do other things. There have. But in my surveying this year in particular of like looking around um, and seeing what God's doing in other parts of the state and all that, I'm pretty firm and, and pretty clear in what I would love to do with my life. And I want to be part of building a healthy biblical church. That's what I want to do. And that's what I want people to come on the journey with us with. 
So we kind of set that the next season is kind of here. We've, we've held this church very, very lightly. I am A-OK handing over this church and giving to someone. Like I said last week, Shane taking over another church. When you come in, you're green, you're naive. When you do it a second time, man, it's either God or you're dumb. You know, because <laughs> you know what you got yourself into. But I want to be part of the real deal. And I haven't seen it anywhere as yet. What I read in the New Testament of what the church could be, what the New Testament church could be. And that's really, really what I want to have a, a good crack at. And Newspring, if you're up for it, that's what we're going to be endeavouring to do. I'm not going to apologise for it either. Um, if I asked you what were the non-negotiables of the Christian life, I wonder what you would say. <laughs> You'd probably say, oh yeah, they're obvious, Dave, you know. It's probably not a good idea to like murder people. <laughs> probably not good to steal, committing adultery. You might say, you know, apparently like, you've got to read your Bible, you've got to pray, you've got to do good things. But what if I said to you that actually, yeah, all that stuff's over there, but actually, as the New Testament church, one thing that is absolutely non-negotiable is that a follower of Jesus Christ shares their life with other Jesus followers. You might take a step back and say, you know what, this is probably the week I should have stayed at home, you know. (laughs) Or you might say, yeah, that's out, yeah, I get that, but you know what, there are actually other priorities in life. Or you might be honest and say, you know what, I know that's true, but the reality is, man, Christians just irritate me. (laughs) Is anyone honest enough to say, you know, the Christians, they irritate, they just like do me in, yeah? Christians are weirdos, right? I mean, you might meet some more sane people who are not followers of Jesus, you know what I'm saying? But I think the appropriate response would probably be if, if I came to you as your pastor and said, you know what, this is absolutely a non-negotiable for any faithful follower of Jesus Christ that you share your entire life with another um, body of followers. I think the appropriate question to ask would be, okay, why? Why? Why is that the reason? Tell me why. And part of what I'm going through, I'm not just going through a purpose statement trying to sell you something. That purpose statement is thread with theological truth, which I desperately want us to understand. So we're going to kick on from last week and um, the couple of weeks before. So if you haven't listened to last week's message, go onto the podcast, go to YouTube, listen um, to that. But the very first line of our purpose statement, they hinge upon everything else. In this church, not just this church, every other church, the hinge, the, 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 the topic sentence of the entire biblical narrative is found in our purpose statement, which says, we are image bearers of God that reflect his love. That sets the tone for our church. Not just our church, every church. Not just every church, the Bible story. And not just Bible story, as I mentioned last week, that actually brings definition to the vocation of actually being a human person living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you wanted to to, to talk more broadly, what does it mean to be truly human? It means to be an image bearer. But being an image bearer or being made in the image of God is one of those Christianese terms which we can all rattle off, but we don't necessarily know what it means. Isn't that right? I mean, who's honest enough to say, there's a lot of Christian words, I have no idea what it means. Like, what are, like, seriously, what are we singing? You know, we could be singing anything. Is this like in Bible code or something? That's part of our challenge to actually unpack these words and actually bring understanding, you know, and all they're getting, get understanding. But as image bearers of God, it actually assumes a lot. It assumes that we understand that in the story of God, that there has been a unique, specific vocation that is placed upon the people of God. We might call this the glory of man, being made in the image of God. This glory was lost in that period that we often call the fall, you know, like Adam and Eve, the fruit, all that kind of stuff. But because of the victory of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross, that which was lost is now restored. The problem is, if we don't know what was lost, how in the world can we live in what's been restored? That's the issue, all right? That's actually the issue. And to be a Christian is to live and to demonstrate what the victory of Jesus Christ actually accomplished. And that the kind of life that that accomplished, that's what we're trying to articulate in our purpose statement. 
So at the end of today, just so you know, I'm not really trying to sell you something. I'm going to let you know that we're going to be relaunching our life groups again. I don't know how many times we've launched and then relaunched and then relaunched and then relaunched life groups. But guess what? We're going to relaunch them again. And I want to actually let you know why it is important that we as followers of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is a non-negotiable that we actually share our lives with other people because there is deep, deep theological roots in that. The last sentence of our purpose statement reads like this. It says, our fellowship lingers outside the walls of church services and builds strong relationships and communities that support and celebrate Together, what we are saying is that the New Spring family, we share our lives with each other, that we live together. You may ask, why? Well, because being a faithful Christian has everything to do with grappling and outworking what Jesus' death, burial, resurrection and ascension has accomplished and living that victory out today. I'm not waiting for Jesus to return to start living out his victory. What's the point? He's already here. Heaven's come back to earth. What's the point? You missed it. You completely missed it. You lived your entire life. Jesus come back and you missed the whole point. <laughs> you missed the whole point. But we actually want to have a great understanding as to what God is doing right now. So last week I put up this slide again. We've been using this metaphor for about a year now. Olivia, if you could chuck that up, the fifth act kind of slide. And um, we, we, we were saying that this is kind of um, a really good metaphor for us to understand what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Guess what? In February, guess what we're going to be going through when I come back? Ta-da! We're going to be breaking this down even more. We're going to continually be coming back. And what um, theologians have actually said is that you can actually understand and read the biblical narrative um, as it's supposed to be, and actually understand, imagine actually understanding it, actually understand it, if you see it as this entire narrative with five different acts. Act number one is creation. Our good creator God builds a beautiful world. Fantastic, right? Then comes the fall. Dun, dun, dun. And the fall's kind of complicated, right? Really, really complicated. After the fall, God executes his rescue plan. Abraham, going to make you into uh, a nation. Israel. But guess what happens to Israel? The rescue plan. The rescue plan fails, stuffs it up. What do you do when the rescue plan needs rescuing? Well, bring on Yahweh. And then you have the next act, which is Jesus. But then you have to understand what... Jesus actually accomplished so that now as Act 5 people, we are supposed to improvise the story of God as a church of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, being the church of Jesus Christ is more than using the cross to get a ticket to go to heaven and sitting here just twiddling your thumbs. It is exciting. It is exhilarating. It is partnering with God to see this world come to flourishment. It's absolutely an incredible thing. So Act 2, kind of spent a little bit of time on Act 2 um, last. We're going to um, go through a little bit of that again because you need to understand the fall in order to understand what Jesus has accomplished. And if you understand what Jesus has accomplished, then you know what you're supposed to live in, right? Makes sense. But if we don't understand the problem of what, what, what Jesus came to solve, it's going to be very, very hard to actually walk out the victory of Jesus Christ. So what we mentioned last week in the fall is one huge act. It goes from about Genesis 3 to Genesis 11. But in that act, there are actually three specific scenes, three different scenes. Think of it like a movie. You've got this big act and it's scene one, scene two, scene three. What happens with most of us is that we know scene one, right? But we're not very familiar with scene two and scene three. So what happens is that when we talk about salvation and we talk about living in the victory of Jesus Christ, our whole paradigm is focused on scene one because we have no idea that scene two and scene three presented some issues which have now been resolved and now you and I as a church get to walk out that resolution for the world. That's what we're kind of saying. So scene number one is Genesis 3, the garden. Rebellion on earth. Everyone knows about Adam and Eve. They took that fruit. Imagine if they didn't take that fruit. Crazy. You know? Turns out this would have still been issues because of the other ones. But, but there's a rebellion on earth. That's what we need to know. There is, there is still a rebellion on earth, isn't there? You know? 
There's a rebellion on earth. Adam and Eve, they opt for self-autonomy. They opt their understanding for their wisdom instead of God's wisdom. They determine to bring understanding and they do things on their terms instead of God's terms. There's a rebellion on earth. We all get that. And because of the rebellion on earth, they are exiled out of the garden. You know, exiled out. Exile is a really big theme. It starts in the garden. You're exiled out. The problem is there is another tree which is in the garden. Understand, this is the story of God. God is communicating to his people about who he is and what has happened. There is another tree in the garden. It's called the tree of you could say the tree of, starts with L, tree of life, eternal life. Let's us know right from the get-go, eternal life does not come from within me. I need to access it because it comes from outside of me. So what happens when you're exiled from the only place that has access to eternal life? What's the consequence? The wages of sin is? Of course, because you have no access to eternal life. That's how the story makes sense, right? And we bang on about that one all the time, but there are a couple of other scenes as well. The next scene is Genesis 6, which talks about another complication where there is a rebellion in the heavenlies. We talked briefly about that last, um, last week. And that's why you can't just focus on Genesis 3, because there's some more complexity. You might say, oh, yeah, Dave, people still rebels here on earth. Yeah, but please understand that that is not all that is happening right now. There are influences that are actually being exerted to actually bring about dehumanization in this world right now. So we can actually have compassion when we see people who are rebelling against God, knowing, oh, wait a minute, there's actually some other things in play. But Genesis 6 talks about a heavenly rebellion, talks about this weird little, weird little scripture where it says that the sons of God, or Elohim, Elohim is a broad word in the Hebrew which embodies all heavenly beings, okay? So other Elohim, the sons of God, they look at women and they say, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and they take, and that's what sin does, eh? They take what is not theirs. They cross a line. And there is a rebellion in the heavenlies. Other scripture, which is not in our canon, but it was very familiar to um, Israel, um, uh, lets us know that these, the, the, these, as far as Israel's understanding, these fallen heavenly beings, they actually came and they taught evil to humans. And there's a lot of evil which is going around. There's uh, a lot of scripture that actually shows us that. So there's, there's two rebellions. Things are pretty, pretty crazy. Not just a rebellion on earth, there's also a rebellion in the heavenlies. Genesis 11 is kind of the pinnacle. It's almost like God just, I, I, I've had enough at Genesis 11, which is the story about this, again, another weird story um, about the Tower of Babel. Everyone familiar with that? Tower of Babel. It's a story about arrogance and empire building um, among humanity. I wonder if there's still arrogance and empire building. Of course, it's something that we all have to deal with, isn't it? For many Christians, Jesus' victory is only addressed Genesis 3. And because understanding is that it just addresses Genesis 3, guess what? The outworking of their faith is only in response to Genesis 3. That makes sense, doesn't it? In all they get and get understanding. So in order to actually live a more, more, more fruitful or a more complete Christian life, let's just get some more understanding. That's all I'm saying. Understand that the fall is not just about Genesis 3. There are, other, there are two other scenes that we need to actually really grapple with as well. Humans are exiled from God's space, Genesis 3. Um, and I talked about that. They, they cut off and they, 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 the result is death. But what about the issues of these principalities or these powers or these other Elohim that there's been a rebellion there? What about evil? What about these wicked spiritual forces? What about Genesis 6? Because Jesus' victory is actually... Dealt with that as well. Dealt with that as well. You see, one of the problems that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is that if our only understanding of the fall is what happened with the rebellion on earth, Genesis 3, then there really is no reason for us to actually say in our purpose statement that our fellowship lingers outside the walls of church services and builds strong relationships and communities that support and celebrate together. Because if Genesis 3 is the only issue, I've been exiled from God's space, I give my life to Jesus, I repent or I turn around, I turn away, I turn around and return. If I return back to God's space, well, that's sold, right? 
That actually means I don't need to do anything else. And that's the problem. Because most of us as followers of Jesus Christ, our only understanding is Genesis 3. Okay, I've been exiled. Now I'm back. I'm all good. But the story is far bigger than that. And that's what I want us to actually walk into. I'm going to um, just read in your hearing again, Genesis 11, 1 to 9. And um, I want to actually lead into what the real conundrum is when we add all this stuff together. So from verse 1, at one time all the people in the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build great cities for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. I reckon that's coming to bite the church in the backside right now. We're going to do this so it makes us famous. Hello, what's branding? Anyway. But the, and we need to be really careful about that as well. You know, like I'm even really aware we're saying we are New Spring, we are New Spring. And I get that. We want to be like we are the local church called New Spring, but we don't want that brand to actually get us in the end. You know what I'm saying? We need to be very aware of that. Verse five. But the Lord came down to look at the city and and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and all they and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city is called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. So this final act, this final scene of Act 2, is this moment of arrogance and empire building, which only happens. And it was actually, uh, the, the people came together and they built this tower for a purpose. I said, this is going to make us famous. This is going to ensure that we don't get scattered all over the world. In those days in the ancient Near East, a tower was built because the closer you get to heaven, it means that the gods are going to come down. And what you would do is that you, you need the gods to actually do certain things for you. If you needed rain, you needed to actually appease the gods of rain. If you needed a harvest, you needed to appease the gods of harvest. If you needed fertility, you needed to appease the gods of fertility. So you'd build this tower and you'd go up it and you would be doing it so that the gods would come down. And as the gods come down, you give them the specific sacrifices that they require in order to get what you need. It's manipulation, in other words. They manipulate the gods. Okay? They think they can manipulate the gods. So it's really interesting to me that they build this tower for the gods to come down. Yahweh looks down and says, Let's go check it out. Let's go check it out. And the whole debacle, and it really is a debacle, because this is the final scene of the fall. This is like where God says, I can't take it no more. You know, I wish I could do a Popeye thing. You remember that? Anyway, the whole debacle ends with a severe curse, which is brought upon humanity and is found in verse 8. In that way, this is the curse, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. That is why the city is called Babel because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. So at that specific moment, there is a fracture that happens with humanity. There is division among humanity. Confusion comes for the very first time because people can't understand each other's language. Have you ever tried to talk to someone who speaks Mandarin and you don't, right? Or if you're of a certain age, have you ever tried to talk to a teenager? <laughs> they speak a different language, right? Is it, you, you, can still, you can speak English and there can still be division because you can't understand each other. You know what I'm saying? That curse is still happening today. There's confusion. There's a scattering. People are separated. And not only that, as I mentioned last week, Deuteronomy actually gives a commentary on this moment and lets us know that not only was there a scattering on the earth among humanity, there was also a heavenly scattering as well. Remember those fallen Elohim? Yeah, God does something with them as well. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 to 9. When the Most High assigned the lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, talking about the Tower of Babel moment, 
He established the boundaries of peoples according to the number of the heavenly court. And from that moment on, Israel becomes Yahweh's special possession. But the other nations, they have different Elohim or principalities and powers that are exerting their influences over him. And that's how kind of the story goes. This is the curse. So this is the curse. This is the problem, okay? Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. This is the curse. There's confusion with language. People can't understand each other. That results to misunderstandings. Any misunderstandings in the New Spring? Oh, yeah, you betcha. Hostility. Have you ever seen hostility around the world? What about war? The creation of enemies. The ignorance of other people's perspectives and points of view. That happens all the time, right? There's a point where that started. People are scattered. They spread. What happens when you're scattered? You become isolated. Is isolation not an epidemic in the world right now? Absolutely. What are the implications? If you're scattered, if you don't belong somewhere, there's this issue with identity. So now we honestly believe as progressive, Western, liberated people, we honestly believe that my identity is all about self, which flies in the face of the kingdom because if you're part of the kingdom of God, your identity is not about you. It's actually about us. It's a communal identity. But this happens from this point, you see. People are scattered. And then the principalities, there are different influences in play which are exerting dehumanizing influences. So they are behind the scenes and they are edging and they are just provoking and they are pushing and they are causing further confusion, further hostility, further war, further isolation, further creation of enemies. This is the pinnacle of act number two, the fall. It's not about a fruit. It's about the fruit and Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. This is complicated. If it was just about the fruit, I can give my life to Jesus and just go, oh, I'm good with God. I can carry on with life. No, no, no. Understand your faith, my faith, this kingdom, oh, this is about God reclaiming what is rightfully his and he has every intention to use you and to use me and to kind of do it together. Interesting that immediately after this third and final scene of Act 2, immediately after this curse, it's a big curse, it's a huge curse, the implications, I've just spoken them, but if you kind of extrapolate that, you actually look around the world and say, oh, yeah, ooh, wow, Genesis 11, whoa, this happened right now. What's interesting and what's so helpful when you actually look at the Bible story like this, you look at the fall and Act 3 is about Israel, right? Immediately after this, we find in Genesis 12, like literally immediately, this is what happens. Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, oh, here we go, Act 3. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That's Israel. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Immediately after the fall, immediately after the curse, God calls and executes his rescue plan. One man, one family who become a nation. And he says, through you, I am going to bless or I am going to reclaim back all of the nations. This is the very first great commission that is given. Let me put it this way. He elects Abraham for a purpose. He elects Israel for a purpose. The purpose is to reclaim. The the purpose is not to weaponize and add to the curse of Genesis 11. The church of Jesus Christ, he elects them as a nation so that the nations are blessed and reclaimed. Not to weaponize his good law. But we, we, we keep on weaponizing, don't we? Look at church history, we keep on weaponizing. Abraham becomes a nation, Israel, and we all know how the story goes. God's rescue plan utterly, utterly fails. And what do you do when the rescue plan is rescuing? Book of Isaiah, God looks around and says, who's going to go for me? And he says, someone go get my breastplate of righteousness. Someone go get my helmet of salvation. Because I, Yahweh, 
I will go myself and I will be the suffering servant. I will be the root of David. I will be uh, um, the son of man. I will be the son of God. I will come and I will do it myself. And Yahweh comes. That's why the Gospels are the great announcement of how God becomes king. Isn't that amazing? Act number four. It all makes sense, doesn't it? And then you come to where we are, act number five. So our salvation is not just Genesis 3. I think that as a church, if we understand that, that will really radically shape our lives. It includes that there's a solution to Genesis 6 and that there is a solution to Genesis 11. And the question we need to ask as a church, and like I said, like, Dave, what would you like to do? Well, I'd love to be part of building a biblical, healthy church. Well, we need to know this stuff if we're going to have a chance of doing that. How do we outwork the solution to this curse? I've got three points for you. Number one, we need to have an ever-increasing, maturing gospel mind. Our understanding of the gospel should be continually broadening. Your biggest vulnerability is if you have been a Christian for decades. That is a big vulnerability. It's one of my biggest vulnerabilities. Because you walk, this, you walk this life for a bit and you think, oh, yeah, I know that. I get it. Like, like, seriously, no one in this room understands the fullness of the gospel. We're going to be continually learning that for the rest of eternity. So it actually takes a posture of humility and this inquisitiveness and interest and say, I need to learn. I need to broaden. There's more to know. As I discover more light, I need to start walking in that greater light. Doesn't it? Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this present evil age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that imply? It implies that the Christian life is an intellectual activity, that we need to continually be thinking and grappling and outworking the victory of Jesus Christ and allow that change in our mind to actually outwork itself in all these beautiful, marvelous, wonderful, like riveting ways. There should be no such thing as a boring Christian life. Seriously, Christians who live this boring beige do the same thing over and over again. I just scratch my head. I'm like, I have no idea what you're doing right now. But what you're doing right now, that is not my experience of the Christian life. It's a crazy life. It's an exhilarating life. The gospel answers the problems of Genesis 3. Absolutely. But it also answers the problems of Genesis 6. And guess what? It also answers the problems of Genesis 11. It reverses the damaging and dehumanizing consequences of Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. Principalities and powers, guess what? For the Christian, they are disarmed. You do not need to be a scaredy cat when you feel the presence of evil. Because that, that evil, those principalities, those powers, they may be there, but they are disarmed. And what you're going to do when you're fully armed, you're fully loaded, and these principalities and powers, they're disarmed. Well, you just walk in there and you do what Jesus did in the Gospels. They're, they're accusing him of actually being possessed by, by a demon. He said, I'm not possessed by a demon. How can a house of Satan come against a house of Satan? No, what you are seeing right now is the strong man being, um, being, being tied up and I am in his house. I am plundering his house. See, for the church to be a true biblical church, we go into places and we're not intimidated. We start plundering. The enemy is trying to do certain things which are dehumanizing. We go in there and there's a complete reversal because we're plundering. What happens when the church is revived, when it's renewed, when she understands who she are? She's not a weak little scaredy cat. She gets up off her feet, walks out of those doors, walks into the streets and starts plundering in the name of Jesus Christ. And what does the city of Armdale need? This is it. Like, seriously, there, there are so many churches in Armadale. Does the city of Armadale honestly need New Spring Church to sit down like this and be a weak, impotent, scared, little weakling of a church? Really? I'll tell you what she needs. She needs a church going to stand up, get out there and start plundering the devil's playground and turn it into heaven. That's what the church needs. But you're only going to get there if you understand the implications of the fall. If you think the fall is all about Genesis 3, you can sit here and no worries. 
You can honestly think, I can be a Christian, I don't even need to attend church. Wait a minute. You just need to broaden your understanding. That's what we need to do. Ephesians 2 verse 14 to 16 says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the systems of law and commandments and regulations. He made peace with Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled two groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. The gospel is an invitation for you and I to enter into one kingdom. There is only one kingdom. We have been united into one people. He has broke down any hostilities that existed that separated us from each other. So if we are separated from each other, it's not because of hostilities, it's because we just don't want to do it. Because everything that could possibly separate us has now been removed. He put that stuff to death. So now we can actually be part of this one people. He made peace, creating in himself one people. Do you belong to this one people, church? Oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong church. Do you belong to it? Because you know what? If someone looked at your life and looked at my life, it should be absolutely obvious. Obvious. Do you honestly think that people walking like around Israel on that, 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 that first Good Friday, they see Jesus lying, like, like, like um, not lying, hanging on the cross? That would have been pretty obvious. They're trying to kill him. They look again. He died. It's obvious. That's obvious. For you and me, people look at us, it should be absolutely obvious. I belong to this one people group. To pick up our cross daily is not a ticket to get to heaven, whatever that means. Even though the promise of the future kingdom, it's sealed. It's going to happen. But it's actually an invitation to put to death certain things in our life. Because when we put to death certain things in our life, this is how we enter and remain in the kingdom of God. It means putting to death self-interests. Self-identity. We now have a communal identity as the people of God. It means to submit to one another. It means to prefer um, one another. It means to empty ourselves for the betterment of other people. It's complete contradiction to the ideologies of this present age. That's why Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this present evil age. Because the patterns of this present evil age, they are complete contradiction to the ways of Jesus Christ. Second thing, we need to move right along, is a practical mindset. People have, been, uh, people have accused Christians of being so heavenly minded they are of absolutely no earthly use. That should not be the case. But there is a practical mindset. Again, you will notice these scriptures, we've gone over them this year and previous years. That's why I don't probably need to go into much detail because we have done this. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 43. Beginning of Act number 5, the early church. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Understand, when the Spirit of God genuinely falls upon a community, the response flies in the face of the ideologies and the patterns of this present evil age. The patterns, the ideologies, the idols of self-autonomy, personal freedom that has its goal of, of atomization, which increases division, separation, and individualization. The spirit comes and we start living in a complete opposite way. Complete opposite way. Those things that the world presents and promotes, they are not fruit of the gospel. This is a pretty challenging verse for 2022. Consider how many times that word and is used. As a senior pastor, I even wish that word and was banned from this verse. Verse 42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That would be okay. No, and, everyone say and. And, and to fellowship. Okay, wait a minute, there's another and. And to sharing in meals. And to prayer. Not just devotion to teaching. It was like their response was devotion to this and to this 
and to this, oh, wait, wait, and also this. There is a practical outworking of being a faithful Christian. We've got a prayer meeting this Wednesday. The reason why Andrew said bring um, warm clothes, because we're going to be walking this property. Because by the grace of God, this next season is about developing this land. We've been sitting on this thing for 30 plus years. It's about time we took this beautiful talent that the Lord's given us, taken it out of the ground and actually start working it. And we need to cover that with prayer. So if it's raining, bring some rain gear. But we're going to be walking around this place. We're going to be praying. We're going to be leaving. We're going to be saying, God, show us what you have for this next season. Anyone excited about that? Tell you what, in 10 years' time you will be because you'll see it. (laughs) Two types of signs um, that are present here. We talked about this in January. There's supernatural signs. Everyone love that? Everyone wants the supernatural signs? Problem is, supernatural signs are birthed out of the common signs. Do you love the common signs? No, you don't. No one does. Common signs are boring. The common signs is what these early believers, they were committed to, what they were devoted to. The apostles' teaching. We gather here on Sundays to teach. To fellowship. We're going to talk about life groups in a minute. Sharing meals together. Do that in your homes. Do that all over the place. Church Church dinners are a highlight, not a low light of our life together. To prayer. Prayer meetings. Do you know what prayer is? Prayer is partnering with God to see his kingdom burst out in this world. Why wouldn't you want to be part of partnering with God? I don't know. But that is a practical thing. Last thing before we're going to get Andrew up is a warfare mindset. A warfare mindset. Anyone want to do some real, genuine, biblical, spiritual warfare? Warfare looks different to what you possibly think. Ephesians 3 verse 10 to 12. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom and his rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Understand that God's plan was to use the church to demonstrate to the principalities and the powers, the unseen rulers. What do you think God's wanting to do in and through the church? He is wanting to remind the principalities and the powers that they are defeated, that their days are coming to an end. He wants there to be a mocking session every time that we actually do these common signs to demonstrate the wisdom of God. The problem is common signs do nothing for us, but they terrify the principalities and the powers because they are in the business of bringing division, of bringing hostility, of bringing enemies. And when we come together as a family, we are demonstrating to them, once again, you have lost, your days are numbered, your judgment is certain, but it does nothing for us. And that's why we don't think it's spiritual warfare. We would go speaking in tongues and doing all this kind of stuff. Let me tell you, I love all that stuff. You can get this high. You can even get an emotional high. But do please do not think that that is more spiritual than actually coming together. Because you are in disagreement with Paul. It reminds him. It mocks him. It mocks him. One of the most interesting and well-known Old Testament stories is David and Goliath, right? There is one line... In the story of David and Goliath, that absolutely annoys me like nothing else. 1 Samuel 17, verse 16. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted. Strutted. In front of the Israelite army. Strutted. Everyone was okay with Goliath strutting. Except for one guy. The church is really okay with the enemy strutting. The story, this story is really, really interesting. Everyone thinks, like, we, we try to liken ourselves, like, who am I in this story? I'm David. You're not David. I remember Shane Goldfin, she showed me a Matt Chandler um, clip about this. <laughs> it was hilarious. And he goes nuts. You think I'm passionate and loud? He, he, went, he went there. We're not David. We're the cowering army behind David. You know who David is? That's Jesus. Jesus kills the enemy. We're the cowering army. 
But what happens? They are cowering. David goes, kills Goliath, cuts off his head, lifts it up. This is not like a kid's story, but all the kids know it. And what happens? All of a sudden, Israel, they get courage. Why do they get courage? Because they respond to the victory. And funnily enough, you keep reading the story, Israel go and they plunder. They plunder the camp. I wonder what would happen if David did all of that stuff. He's over there holding the head and Israel are still <laughs> cowering. Don't respond to the victory. That would probably look like the church today. Because the victory's already happened and we're still over here. And the enemy struts. How are we going to respond to the victory of Christ with a broadened understanding? Well, as I said, we are going to relaunch our shared life life groups. And that's a common sign. And you think, boring. It might be boring for you. It might be boring for me. But the enemy shudder when we do this stuff. So I'm going to get Andrew to come up here and... Um, and he's going to come up and um, launch this. Can I just say, like, even like today, just watching like um, the Newnham family, like filling in the gaps, like, like something happened with the roster, yeah. right? <laughs> and then like, I'm seeing, I'm seeing like Andrew, Larissa, and the kids like doing the offering. I'm thinking like, wow, we're blessed to have you guys in our church. So so blessed. But you want to talk about life groups? Yes. So let's chuck that slide up. So, and yeah, can we get the slide up? Come so, stand here. Come be the centre of attention. Sure. So we're relaunching life groups. So what, what is a life group? A life group, connect group, small group, it's been called lots of things. It's a group of people that, in essence, meet together and share life together. And what I've written up here. Um, so it's a group that brings life to either you or your community. So it could be a Bible study. It could be a more traditional cell group type Look, it could be something a bit different. It could be a four-wheel drive group. There is a four-wheel drive group in the church. Um, it could be a prayer group. It could be a computer gamers group. It could be a craft group. It could be anything where we meet as a group of believers and we actually do this thing called life together. So what we've done is I'm sure there is actually quite a lot of life groups out there. We just don't, might not know that they necessarily exist. So what I've done is I've put together a survey it's a QR code, so if you look at it through your phone, it'll launch a survey on your phone. They could do that right now, right? Yep. Just open up your camera and... Point your camera to the QR code. Oh, there we go. Click on the link, and it'll bring up a survey. Wow, there it is right there. Whole idea of the survey is to find out, first of all, what groups exist within the church and see how the church can help support it. Also to see who's interested in running a new group or joining a new group. Um, and also just to... Find where everyone is at with this. So I really would like to encourage you all, fill out the survey, give us as much information as we can. If you're not in a group, let's get you in a group. Let's get you surrounded by people that are walking the same journey as you. And let's do life together. All right, well, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Can we give um, Andrew just a, a great hand? When we come together and we share our lives together, that's what it means to be part of the New Spring family. But broader than that, that's what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Because as we do that, we are outworking and we are living in the victory of Jesus Christ because the curse brought about all this division, all this hostility. And when we come together, we're actually like sticking it to the principalities and powers. And what's supposed to happen is that it's not the, it's not the enemy that's supposed to be strutting. It's actually supposed to be the church that struts. We're supposed to be those who go and plunder. And we go into the devil's playground and say, you know what, for the last hundred or so years, this has been your playground, this has been your reputation. No more. Yeah. The church has arrived yeah. and we plan to take over. Let me just finish with this 
band, you can come up. And yes, we will sing that awesome song again, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> I've shared this story before, but this really does bring to light the importance of us actually being together, gathering together. A member of a certain church who previously had been attending services regularly stopped going. After a few weeks, the pastor decided to visit him. It was a chilly evening. The pastor found the man at home alone, sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for his pastor's visit, the man welcomed him, led him to a big chair near the fireplace and waited. The pastor made himself comfortable and said nothing. In the grey silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs. After some minutes, the pastor took the fire tongs and carefully picked up a brightly burning ember and placed it to one side in the, in the fireplace. Then he sat back in his chair, still silent. The host watched all this in quiet fascination. As the one lone ember's flame diminished, there was a momentary glow and then it was out, no more fire. Soon it was cold and it was as dead as a doornail. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. Just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the cold, dead ember and placed it back in the middle of the fire. Immediately it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said, Thank you so much for your visit, and especially for the fiery sermon. I shall be back in church next Sunday. What happens when life comes and gets us, or we fall, or we burn out? We immediately think, I need to distance myself from the family of God. That's the immediate response, isn't it? We've all been there. My problem is when I'm there, I'm still rusted on the preach. I still got to rock up. But we've all been there. But how do you get healed? How are you restored? How is that fire lit again? It doesn't happen by distancing. You have to share your life with the body of Christ. You have to come together as a family of God. And that is the way God has shaped his church to be. And as we are faithful in living out that, we are faithful in reversing the curse that happens in Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11, and more than that. Every time we come together in love and in fellowship and gathering together and devoting ourselves to these common signs, we are mocking the enemy. We are reminding the enemy, your days are numbered. Your judgment is set and you have been defeated. And the kingdom of God rises and the kingdom of God goes forth and we go and we plunder the devil's playground. That's how this is all supposed to work. Amen. Let me pray for you and then we're going to sing. Father, I thank you for your word, for your goodness. I ask that as we've unpacked some scripture this morning, that greater understanding has come. That we understand your story and our place within it. Father, I pray for courage to rise, for conviction to rise, and for devotion to deepen in your church. Father, I lift up New Spring Church as she rebuilds towards this new season, as she gets ready for day number one. May we be diligent. May you come and do what we cannot do. Come and unite us in love and in grace as we've never seen before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, church.